I'm Mary Ambrose, and this is the CG Podcast. The North America Free Trade Agreement is up for renegotiation. NAFTA came into effect in 1994, creating one of the world's largest free trade zones. Appropriately named, it included Canada, the United States, and Mexico. President Trump has decided it deserves a second look. While this renegotiation causes a lot of hand-wringing and worry, my guests today see this as an opportunity to shift the scales. Now, they say, perhaps we can seriously explore issues that have been ignored for too long. Toby Moody sees this as a chance to protect the role that traditional knowledge has played in our modern lives. Marsha Cadogan hopes these talks will create a robust discussion about the multi-billion business of trading in protected agricultural produce and foodstuffs. Toby and Marsha are both postdoctoral fellows with CG's International Law Research Program. Toby is researching international law and governance around the protection of traditional knowledge and genetic resources and its relationship to intellectual property. Marsha's research is focused on the interrelationship between geographical indications and trademark laws and further the global implications of geographic indications in free trade agreements. But today, they're going to keep it simple. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Toby, let's start with traditional knowledge. How do you define it? And can you give me a few examples of how we may use it and not even know that's what it is? Um, Thank you, Mary. Um, Traditional knowledge is normally, it's seen as the know-how of indigenous peoples. It's um, the knowledge, their knowledge, their innovations, their practices, um, usually generated within their communities, um, typically passed down from generation to generation. Um, usually it bears a connection to the environments they live, and so there's uh, um, an element of traditional knowledge that's connected to, um, the co- to the location of the indigenous people, and that helps them with adaptation to their natural conditions. In so which it li- would be these leaves are for burns, these leaves or for if you have something else, that kind of thing. Um, yes, um, and so because of where they live, the, the kind of natural um, features in their environment, the, the, the plants in their environment could mean different things to them of to course. help them with adaptation. So give me a couple of modern examples where I would be using something that was based on traditional knowledge. Um, so, for instance, um, ste- the stevia plant um, um, that has it's found its way into products like Coke Life. Um, you have... Um, it's a natural sweetener, isn't it's it? It's a natural sweetener. So it's been put in all kinds of things. Yes. So how is this knowledge being eroded? Climate change is one of the, one of the popular um, reasons. Um, with a change in natural conditions, a lot of plants um, or um, environmental conditions that the knowledge is based on um, are passing away. And so that also means that such knowledge practices um, are also being lost. Um, also, you have sometimes the death of elders who hold such knowledge um, without passing the knowledge down to subsequent generations. Um, and that could also lead to a loss or of traditional knowledge. So I think NAFTA gives a good opportunity to um, for the parties to actually discuss um, the importance of recognizing 
and protecting traditional knowledge within their communities. As you know, the three countries um, have very large indigenous populations. And so it's very important that within the context of the NAFTA, there are um, inclusions um, that point to the recognition of the contribution that these indigenous peoples are making um, and that within the commercial um, activities that will flow naturally from a free trade um, zone, that recognition and respect will be given to the indigenous peoples. So that would be like the intellectual property part. So you'd get to say your use of stevia for Diet Coke or Coke Life is taken from us. So we have kind of a copyright, kind of intellectual property on that. We're not saying we own the plant, but we're saying we showed you how to use it. Well, yes. And so there is, so we're basing it on the intellectual property chapter, um, chapter 17. And I think that there will be a need to recognize the role that in subsequent acquisitions of intellectual property rights, to recognize the role that indigenous knowledge has contributed to that. And that could be by compensating, it could be by establishing benefit sharing terms, and also in ascribing rights that prior art is considered based on even um, indigenous knowledge practices. And I presume also it would be a chance to repair relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Now, Marcia, you study the implications of geographical indications on free trade agreements. And I'm going to give a very simple definition of what we're talking about. GIs are geographical indications, and that's where a produce comes from. So these indications determine why some produce is protected. Now, a very simple example is champagne is from a region of France. You can't buy Canadian champagne. It's called something else. But you can buy something called champagne in the U.S. because they don't play by that rule. Marcia, you argue that sometimes there are similarities between geographical indications and what Toby's been talking about, traditional knowledge. Right. And there's sort of an intellectual property of a sort. Now, explain how that would work. Mm-hmm. So geographical indications are intellectual property rights. And uh, the similarities, if we think about what geographical indications are, we think product, people, place. So it's the product. It has to be something really unique and special about the product that's related to the, the place of origin, so where, where the product is cultivated, where it's produced, and then who are these persons who are, who are, who are producing and making the product. So uh, the similarities has to do with the history, the culture that Toby mentioned earlier, and uh, the, the history, the, the culture, and the traditions associated with the product. To give a very practical example, which will be a focus of concern in NAFTA, just like coffee, right? So coffee is grown in certain certain regions, and there are certain types of coffees that are protected as geographical indications. Colombian coffee is an example. Ethiopian coffee is is another example. The Colombian coffee is extremely important, and they've set up a whole scheme related to to geographical indications. In terms of how it's produced, we see there the history, the culture, the traditions coming out there as well because it's something that's been cultivated in a certain region or certain regions of Colombia for for many hundreds of years, right? Another similarity has to do with 
they're both collective rights. So collective meaning it's not owned by one person, right? Uh, so Mary, for example, you cannot own TK on your own, right? It's owned by a group. Traditional knowledge. Tra- no. Tra- sorry, traditional knowledge. Yes. It's, it's, it's owned by a group. Geographical indications are collective rights. They're owned by a group of people. So it, it's, 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 it's unlike a trademark that can be owned by a company or by one person. And another, having spoken of that similarity, a difference is geographical indications are themselves more exclusionary form, form of rights. So although they're collective rights, they don't include everyone. Traditional knowledge can be owned by community. Geographical indications may, it may be related to an agricultural product that's located in a community, but it's only cultivated in a particular area, and therefore only that those producers in that area can own rights in the intellectual property generated from the geographical indications. So, for instance, I'm in Bogota and I have a dry cleaning service. I don't get any cut of the coffee action. Exactly. Okay, understood. So how, Marcia, how does the geographic indications sort of resemble in many ways traditional knowledge and what's the difference and how will it be an easier or a harder sell in the NAFTA discussions? The similarity really has to do with when there are similarities, that is, what is being protected, the product, the culture, the value, the history, the people. The difference really and why it will be an issue in NAFTA is because of the value of geographical indications, the commercial value of of geographical indications. How can Canada and Mexico protect these things, these foodstuffs, in the NAFTA talks when it's things like potatoes and maple syrup? Mm -hmm. First of all, we need to have a domestic legislation that recognize agricultural products and foodstuffs as geographical indications. That's in Canada, that will be the case. And because of the comprehensive economic trade agreement that Canada signed with the European Union in uh, the the earlier part of, of 2017. So that was kind of falling in line with what the EU already does. Right. And for Mexico, Mexico does not have a domestic legislation that say they recognize, protect, they protect geographical indications. But what they do have is a type of intellectual property law called an appellations of origin, which is very similar to to geographical indications, except that there are certain differences uh, uh, about an an, an appellations of origin that say the entire production process of the product has to to take place in a certain certain region. So in Mexico, you'll you'll have certain products that are protected, right? They're, They're mangoes at the atalfa mango, there, there is a, a, t- a type of cheese. There is tequila, but that's protected as an alcoholic geographical indication. That's reference. a whole other so, category. So that's, yeah, so but basically, totally what you're saying is, in Mexico, you don't just they can they want to protect not only they, for instance the avocado, but they want to send you guacamole. Right, right, right. So, so that's the first thing. So we, 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 we need the law, which we will have the geographical indications law in Canada. We also have to see it as an important issue, right? You may recognize, there are many jurisdictions that recognize geographical indications on their books. So it's on their statute, but it's not used. And this happens a lot globally, right? So what Canada has to do then is find, identify products that can be registered as geographical indications. We need to see this as important. Like if, what? If what, we, would you, what would you pick? We could probably say, without further analysis, PEI potato, potatoes, for example, right? Um, maple syrup, 
possibly. So, th- so, so, th- those are two examples. We have our own type of cheeses. There, there's the the Oka cheese from from Quebec, for example. And um, it doesn't have to be an agricultural product. It could be a meat kind. It could be beef. It could be lamb. In Quebec, they have there's a provincial legislation that actually recognizes a type of lamb as a geographical indication. So seeing it as important on the domestic level is relevant to actually advancing talks about enhanced rights or greater rights for GIs in NAFTA. A full-scale recognition of geographical indications would prevent products from being called imitation of feta, feta-style cheese, right? Only the geographical indication producer can use or would be able to use the name feta on, on cheese, right? So... Other competitors are prevented from free riding on the name. And so this is what the U.S. is opposed to because they, it, it, it's a problem for them. They, would not be, they will not be able to get their type of products using similar names into Canada because of uh, issues with border measure laws, right? That's a problem. So in NAFTA, we need to, Canada needs to take the position that these are important forms of intellectual property rights. We have uh, products that can be registered and we see benefits from it in terms of nation branding, uh, socioeconomic benefits, and, um, and, and also possibly the preservation of culture depending on what is being protected. Toby, what do you think are the chances of success of getting traditional uh, knowledge acknowledged within the NAFTA discussions? Well, I think that um, given the history of of the difficulties in agreeing to protecting traditional knowledge, um, that there is a low chance that traditional knowledge will actually be incorporated as a binding component of the treaty of the of the agreement but from the lessons that we learned from the recent TPP the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, we can tell that there is we can have success in incorporating references to traditional knowledge in the agreement Um, the TPP includes some provisions that recognize respect um, and call on the parties to respect acknowledge the role of traditional knowledge um, and I think that will be a very helpful step in um, building the platform for um, subsequent protection of traditional knowledge within the free trade agreement. Um, it's very important as an issue because there is a strong connection between industrial preferences. Um, industries make use of traditional knowledge. And as we know, um, innovation from the perspective of industries is tied to investment. And it's linked to years and years of um, research and development. And there needs to be certainty um, in terms of the legal terrain for investments to flourish. And so where there is uncertainty as to um, the terms of access, the terms of using traditional knowledge, it does have a ripple effect of frustrating innovation, of frustrating investment in natural product research, which is why I think um, it's important that where a country like Mexico has ratified the Nagoya Protocol, um, even though U.S. and Canada presently aren't into it as much as um, Mexico is, um, that the NAFTA is able to spell out at least the minimum basis for which 
um, there is a level of certainty as to how the use of traditional knowledge within the free trade area is going to really be regulated. Marcia, what do you think are the chances of success of getting geographical indications into the trade agreements of NAFTA? They will be a part of the NAFTA uh, agreement. The current NAFTA agreement has provisions on geographical indications, so it will be included. The important thing really is what will be included. I don't think it will be at the level that uh, would encourage the greater protection on a full scale for geographical indications. We can look to the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement as an example, um, although it's, it's an agreement that was never, that was never you know, brought to fruition, really. Um, but we, it was led by the U.S. There were provisions on geographical indications, and these were very narrow provisions that said that they could be trumped by trademark rights. And, and so I think it will be the same uh, position that will be taken in NAFTA. And it would be really then be up to Canada and Mexico to try to foster greater protection and greater understanding of geographical, geographical indications on a domestic level. Thank you both very much. Toby Moody and Marsha Cadogan are both postdoctoral fellows with CG's International Law Research Program. You can find articles by Toby and Marsha and our other podcasts on the website, which is cgonline.org. CG is the Center for International Governance Innovation, an independent, nonpartisan think tank. I'm Mary Ambrose.